Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast. We're delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Lorenzo Andolfato today from Heidelberg University. Hello. Your field is Chinese literary studies and comparative literature. Before we get into that, I wonder if I could just ask about this period we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, uh, the late 19th century in China. You talk about a semiotic rupture at yes, one point. Uh, that's right. Could you sort of put yeah. that in layman's language for us? Yes, so there will be a period of transition, as I think we all agree. And what I try to do is, I'm trying to see if this transition somehow gets digested through literature and the form of the novel in particular, because that's what I do. And what I try to argue is that there are certain forms of narration and genres that come out of that particular kind of, yeah, we call it semiotic rapture, but it would be a general transformation of the way people would understand themselves in time and space. Put simply, it's basically the idea that when there's huge political and societal change, that is reflected in yeah. the popular literature of the day. That would be pretty much correct. It's a simplification in that what I try to look for is certain kinds of, of narrative trends that would not happen otherwise. I mean, so I know your PhD was on science fiction. Exactly. Is science fiction one example of a kind of genre that is emerging, particularly in this period, partly in response yes. to all of this? My, my PhD work was, was on science fiction and utopian fiction from that time, in that it's really the, the two genres overlap a lot. And so they are the byproducts of certain uh, underlying discourses related to how China was changing, and we usually uh, we refer, we refer to it as the modernization of the country. Of course, we cannot really pinpoint what was becoming modern, but I would say that during a particularly intense process of modernization of the country, certain forms of narration came out, and science fiction was the main one, in that it addressed certain problematics that were debated and discussed by most of the, of the literati of the time. What yes. actually are they writing about in the science fiction I mean, novels? Give us, give us a sense of some it's, of the topics. It's really weird. Usually these novels are set in the future, hence my looking at them as utopias, because they're a sort of reconstruction of the country somewhere yeah. down the road. But give us some plots. Yeah, you have uh, people uh, experimenting with new inventions, they're going under... It's like Jules Verne. You have people flying with strange machines, going underwater, discovering new people that were living in places unexpected. You have machinery, guns, uh, wonderful cities, and strange plots that somehow do, do not go anywhere, but somehow ramble around these imaginary locations, right? Good, and you've used now several times the word utopia. I mean, yeah. most people, when they think about utopia, have this European image. Imprint, yes, Imprint, right? right. Well, you, we, know, we know that utopia comes from, from Thomas, More, Thomas More's book from 1516, right, where it would imagine this island in an unspecified place uh, and it would describe this, society, this ideal society that is developing there. And what I try to say is that we can somehow abstract this idea and, and find it somewhere else. In my case, it would be in late imperial China. And what is interesting in that period is that the idea of utopia overlapped with the idea of the nation. And to me, this qualifies a lot as a kind of utopian modality of thinking. And how do re they refer to this new idea? Well, it, it's, it depends, because you have certain authors that stick to the model of the nation, so they call this imaginary country of the future New China, 
or the Yellow Ward. So they're cl clearly giving a sort of nationalist, ethnically uh, well-defined uh, definition to this new imaginary place. There are certain other authors that talks about uh, new, the world of the future, the new world, the new era, and they try to, to, to point or to gesture as a sort of cosmopolitan uh, communion of people where the, the national boundaries are transcended. And that in a way is also a feature of Thomas More's utopia, right? So the new world, uh, an encounter. Exactly. This is a, a a perspective and I'm, I'm exploring right now, so I would be careful to, 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 to draw these comparisons. But the idea would be the general agreement on Thomas More's utopia was that it was written right after the discovery, quote-unquote, of the quote-unquote new word. Sorry, why are you using this quote-unquote phrase? Well, I guess that if we think about the whole event in terms of discovery and new word, then we are foregrounding a certain perspective that would be the European perspective of back then, right? And framing something that was already there, because it's not like it, that place didn't exist before we, we went there, uh, just framing it in this way foregrounds our uh, somehow, again, semiotic rupture, our coming to terms with the fact that the, the world as we knew it was changing and it was larger, vaster, and it gave new ways, new trajectories to move uh, across. And so the sort of collective coming to term with this new otherness at the other side of the ocean um, was elaborated also through literature. And Thomas More's utopia is a particularly obvious example in that this new world beyond is somehow uh, reduced to an island, and in this island we have we are given us a, a, a new ways of descriptions of new ways of living, of different kinds of social arrangements, and to me these uh, imaginations seems a lot like seem a lot like projections of fear and expectations of what was potentially going on in a place that we didn't know anything about it. So both in the case of Thomas More in the early 16th century and in late imperial China, there was an encounter with change or... Yes. What were the models Chinese literati used? Uh, so, of course, there was a tradition going on, a certain literary tradition consisting of uh, imagine, imagining different places that were radic radically different places um, and society's ways of living. So... It wouldn't be correct to, 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 to describe Thomas More as the first utopia. There are different kinds of imagination, of that, uh, different kinds of utopianism and modality, similar modalities of thinking popping up here and there. So usually when it comes to the Chinese literary tradition, uh, scholars agree upon Tao Yuanming's Peach Blossom Spring being the locus classicus of Chinese utopianism. When does that date from? That's from the early 50, uh, 5th century. And it was indeed written in a time of social upheaval, but I would be careful in, in put group all this, the late 19th century utopian novel, Thomas More Utopia, Utopia, Utopia and then Tao Yuanming's fifth century Peach Blossom Spring. I would be careful to group them all together. Um, it may be obvious to say, but each instance of utopianism relates in a certain way to its historical background. And for what concerns the Peach Blossom Spring, different issues were going on. 
back then. Let's, let's put it this way. It's, it was not a utopia looking elsewhere. It was not looking uh, necessarily toward the future. It was more of a conservative, nostalgic, golden dream of a golden era of the past. So I would be, when, when I usually write about this, these things, I'm very careful in trying to define utopianism in another way, or in a more transculturally productive way. Yeah. It's actually a good point that you bring up transcultural here. In our project, we are interested in understanding the connections between Asia and Europe in terms of circulation of knowledge and concepts. Yes. But from what you just said, it seems to me that in your case, connection doesn't play. There is a certain... A what I, I, I've been trying to do recently was to... So let's put it this way. Um, an idea like utopia, it's so vague that you could potentially abstract it to such a level that it would apply to any kind of political project, right? So, and in, it in, indeed it does. Every kind of political project has a sort of end or goal, ideal goal that maybe it's unrealizable, but it's at least in our mind there. So my concern was to try to ground my definition and then deployment of the notion of utopia to certain conditions. So what you're doing is a comparison. It's a sophisticated comparison, yes. <laughs> would you like to elaborate on yes, what you I mean will, by I a sophisticated will. comparison? Uh, again, going back to the question of abstraction, if you, if, you gave, if you give the notion of utopia the most general definition, then you can compare everything, anything, because anything is kind of utopia. I don't want to do that. And with my work, I try to, to, to connect the production of utopian thinking and of utopian prax, uh, practices so not only literature, but also philosophy or uh, social experiments, I tried to connect this historical phenomenon to certain preconditions, uh, traditional ways of thinking to modern ways of thinking. So a, a, a transition from tradition to modernity this would be the precondition for utopian writing and this thinking. This sounds methodologically extremely challenging. It, it is in that I come, I am approaching all these texts from a literary angle, so I'm really aware of the fact that I have to rely, I have to build from, from the ground up a certain approach, and it's not always easy. In that, it's how can you define notions such as modernity? The more you look into that, the more you realize that you cannot pinpoint it to something in particular. There's no, it's more of a process that, uh, that is from, uh, fragmented and not uniform. So how can you use it in order to, to, to ground something else on it, right? And I imagine on top of that is also translation and there are multiple linguistic issues that come with it. This is probably the most interesting aspect. And then you can argue two different things. One thing I'm trying to argue, one point I'm trying to make is that regardless of the existence of translations and people communicating and reading each other's, so regardless if there was or there was not a certain Chinese scholar reading Thomas More and then writing similarly. I don't care about that. What I'm trying to say is that if there are certain preconditions, there are certain texts, similar texts. Of course, on top of this, there can be, we can retrace certain uh, circulations of ideas and texts. There were translations in the late Qing, Edward Bellamy's uh, looking backward was, was, was being read a lot by the Chinese literati, so you, you cannot deny certain branching outs of, of texts and ideas. 
but they are on top of, of other more, let's say, let's call them structural uh, preconditions. Okay, and before I ask my last question, yeah. when was Thomas More translated into Chinese? In, I think it was in 1945. So that late, so... Yeah, but what is interesting is that the, the Chinese word for utopia appeared much before, much earlier than the actual uh, translation of Thomas More. And that to me is really interesting in that we clearly had some literative writers that felt necessary to use that particular word and all the background meaning that was coming with it to express their own local ideas. Can I ask, are they, are they looking back to Chinese history to find a comparable turn, or do they mm. coin a term, a phonetic term for utopia? That's the thing. Even though they had their own tradition of utopia-like imaginaries, so you have the peach blossom spring, uh, you have notions like datong or taiping, so great harmony, great peace, or you can go to the Buddhist tradition and, and talk about the pure land or the Thai tradition and the Western paradise. Even though they had all of this, they still refer to a word like Wutuobang, which is the phonetic, phonetic uh, translation of utopia, and before the actual translation of the text. So that's something to think about. So your ambitious work of disentangling all these different meanings and concepts and translation processes mm. can actually help us to reread Thomas More's work and his understanding of time. I think that what I want to do is to uh, build up a transcultural perspective through which look back to Thomas More and seeing it as a not as a thing in itself, that a fascinating thing that came out of, of, of Renaissance Europe, but rather a starting point uh, that would branch out to a larger network of texts and ideas. Lorenzo, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Thank you for having me.